How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. It is in the word of God that our foundation is found, and it is that that we want to talk about tonight as we get into our lesson. Thank you for being here. If you're visiting with us especially, always happy to meet those and have those among us who are interested in hearing the word of God and honoring the God of heaven. And that's what we do at East Side as we assemble together to worship him. Worship is adoring showing adoration, and that's what we're trying to do for the God of heaven. As we talked about this morning in our lesson, it pleases us very well to please him. And we know that he's pleased by worship, that is in spirit and in truth. So thank you for being here this evening. A firm foundation is what you rely on for a long, long time. If you're planning to live in a building for a long time, you rely on that foundation for a long time. You might forget about it, you might even not remember that it's there, but it's always underneath everything that you're doing. Many times in Scripture, God will call us back to the firm foundation of His Word, to the beginning of a relationship, to the beginning of a covenant, to something to look, to look at that was at, at the origin of something that He wanted. The picture that you're seeing on your screen is uh, one that I've shown several times here. I used it quite a bit in the foundations class, actually. This is a foundation. It's a foundation, a picture of a close-up, a part of a foundation of a synagogue that's in Capernaum. And uh, The black stone there was actually from the first century synagogue that was in Capernaum, archaeologists tell us. On top of that was laid another foundation in the wider stone. That's the top of that. But it's interesting to me that they used the same foundation <laughs> that was there basically in the first century. That's what you can do with a good foundation. You can go back to it and you can build on it. And God encourages us to do that, encourages His people to do that in many ways uh, throughout Scripture. Eventually, in just a minute, we're going to go back to Acts chapter 2 and look at some foundational principles that are there for us concerning the church and how it is to operate, and how it's to function, and some important principles and elements that it operates by. But I want to think about this concept with you, that the Lord often reminds His people of foundational elements. For instance, in the time of Isaiah, when Isaiah was prophesying around 700 B.C., I'm sorry, around 700 B.C., Isaiah says on behalf of the Lord, Isaiah chapter 51, verses 1 and 2, Listen to me, you who follow after righteousness. You who, you who seek the Lord, look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the hole of the pit from which you were dug. Look to Abraham your father and to Sarah who bore you, for I called him alone and blessed him and increased him. What, what God is telling the righteous people of Isaiah's time to do is if you want to increase your faith, if you want to have a faith like you need to have even now, Look back to the beginning, to, if you will, your ancestor, Abraham, his wife, Sarah, who were called in faith, who lived in faith, and who were blessed tremendously by me. Go back to the beginning, in other words, of my relationship with you as a people. Go back to Abraham and Sarah and look at that rock that you were dug out of right there foundationally. Jesus does something similar In Matthew chapter 19, you remember how in Matthew 19 and verse 3, the Pharisees 
came to him testing him, saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Now, I want to tell you that in the time of Christ, that was a hotly debated subject among uh, the schools of the rabbis. You had uh, especially two competing schools of rabbis that said vastly different things about that. He had other opinions concerning it, even as you do today, concerning marriage, divorce, and remarriage. How does Jesus answer the question? Well, he, he, he doesn't really enter into it as a current day squabble. But rather, notice what he says as he answered them in verse 4. Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. What Jesus does is he saying, I'm not going to enter into all of these squabbles and arguments and lines of logic and all of this stuff that you've got going on right now. Let's just go back to the beginning and look at what God said. And here's something foundational that answers all of these questions. Let's go back to the beginning. And so it is with the Lord's church. We're ever striving to go back to the beginning. To look at what God established in His Word and instituted through His apostles. And to be what He put in order there. And to build what we're doing today precisely on that foundation. Our foundation, of course, ultimately in the church is Jesus Christ. But you see the beginning of the church occurring in Acts chapter 2. And so I want to look for just a little while with you tonight at some very basic things, foundational elements of the church that we can see in Acts chapter 2. And the first of those might just be that in the church and as God's people, we must wait on God. Acts chapter 1, Jesus had risen from the dead. Luke is continuing on in writing the book of Acts to tell us about uh, the history of the church as it's established and spreads. But Jesus is appearing to His apostles, and He did so for about 40 days after His resurrection. Verse 4 says, Being assembled together with them, He commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which He said, You have heard from Him. Now, I don't know about you. Uh, we know from the Gospel of John that uh, and from the Gospel of Matthew, as far as that goes, that the disciples went back to Galilee for a short time and met Jesus in Galilee, where He conversed with them by the Sea of Galilee, if not other places there. But now they're back near Jerusalem, and Jesus tells them to tarry or dwell or wait in Jerusalem. He'd been with them off and on for about 40 days now. It's... Ten days or so, give or take, to the day of Pentecost. They don't know how long they're going to have to wait, but he tells them to wait in Jerusalem. Now, now I don't know about you. I don't know if you're like me. You have come, you know, if you're one of the apostles, you have come to the solemn conclusion that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God and you know that because He has been raised from the dead. You know that as sure as you know anything that you've ever known. That a man has been raised from the dead by the power of God who must indeed 
be the Son of God Himself. I don't know about you, but I think I would be chomping at the bit to go everywhere and tell people about that. I, I think waiting in Jerusalem would be the last thing that I would want to do right about now. Maybe the apostles didn't feel that way. Maybe that's just how I think I would feel. But what do they do? They go and they wait. How long are we going to have to wait? Can you imagine after the three days? Of course, they, they go through the um, very necessary thing of having the Lord help pick them another apostle to take Judas's place. So that's, that's going on. And no, no doubt they're there with other believers. They're engaged in prayer. But how long are we going to have to wait? And exactly, exactly what is it that's going to happen when the waiting's over? Do they even know that? There are just a lot of people who say they're followers of Christ who at this point in time <clears throat> probably would have said, well, you know what we didn't need to do? Christ, you know, He's ascended now, so we need to start building some altars and stuff, and we need to come, some, come up with some sort of worship to figure out how we're going to worship Him, and we need to start getting a, a group together to tell everybody about this and ha- making all these plans and everything, but that's not what they did. They waited. And they waited for... A, Apparently 10 days or so till the day of Pentecost. And you come to Acts chapter 2, the familiar text. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, still waiting. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And here is what they were waiting for, even though they probably did not know fully what they were waiting for. They knew the promise of the Spirit was coming. But they had waited. And now it had come. And it would be by the work of the Spirit, not only empowering them miraculously here, but particularly through the word which he inspired them to speak on this day, that the church would come into existence. We're looking back to the rock from which we came, to this moment in time where God opens up the covenant. The psalmist had said in Psalm 37 and verse 34, wait on the Lord and keep his way, and he shall exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you will see it. So the principle of waiting on the Lord, allowing God to work His providence and reveal His will as He sees fit in time. Not always when we think we might like it. You know, this had to be especially difficult for Peter the impetuous, right? Always wanting to get ahead of the Lord. Always wanting to run ahead of what Jesus had intended. And for so many people of faith of ancient times even who had this difficulty of just waiting on God for Him to do things and reveal things in His time. There are a lot of people today who want to run ahead of what God wants them to do. They don't take the time to listen to His Word, to understand what He has said. I'm going to be speaking more about this in just a minute. But waiting on the Lord Psalm 130 and verse 5, 
I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in His Word, I hope. It's in His Word that my future expectation is. I'm counting on Him to keep His Word. And I'm waiting for that to come to fruition in my life. There's a very instructive passage. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 1, if you'd like to look at it. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 1. Uh, intersprinkled in, of course, the book of Ecclesiastes, which is Solomon's uh, inspired look at life under the sun and the futility of it without God. He notices a number of things, some of which uh, I think are difficult for us to grasp, but here, maybe not so much. For he says to us in Ecclesiastes 5 and verse 1, that we're to walk prudently when you go to the house of God and draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools for they do not know that they do evil. There are people who want to come into God's presence and worship God, and well, we're just going to start worshiping God. We're going to do something for Him. We're going to get up and shout. We're going to uh, whatever uh, that it moves us. However, whatever we're moved to do, that's what we're going to do. In fact, you hear that a lot. You know, whatever you're moved to do, <laughs> you, you you do that in worship to God. Whatever, and and that's that's not what you see Solomon saying. What you see Solomon saying is you, you draw near to hear what God has to say. Rather than just offer the sacrifice of fools, because God doesn't accept any old sacrifice any old way. He has things He wants done in particular ways. And we need to wait and learn what those ways are before we just throw ourselves into doing something somehow. This principle runs all throughout Scripture. We studied it just very recently in our Bible classes in 1 Samuel chapter 13. I encourage you to turn back there. As we looked just the other night at a problem that Saul had, 1 Samuel 13 and verse 8, he'd come to Gilgal and he waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel. Samuel didn't come to Gilgal. The people were scattered from him. And Saul said, Bring a burnt offering and peace offerings here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. Well, that really wasn't his job. Nobody would ask him to do that. He didn't do it in the proper way. He wasn't the right person. It happened as soon as he had finished presenting the offering that Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him that he might greet him. And Samuel said, What have you done? Saul said, when I saw the people were scattered from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash, then I said, the Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal and I've not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering to the Lord. Well, all that sounds well and good, right? Uh, Saul's heart was certainly in the right place, right? <laughs> it was not. A lot of people read this text and I think from a modern view of how people serve God today have real difficulty understanding what in the world it is that, that Saul possibly could have done wrong. And the answer is everything. He did everything wrong. Now, now again, to, to many a modern worshiper, they're just completely lost with this. How could, how could this be wrong? Well, the chief wrong was he didn't wait on the Lord. And the thing was not done in the Lord's way and in the Lord's time. 
whatsoever. Saul's got all kinds of excuses. He's got it all rationalized why he really needed to do this. You know, he was in a tough situation. The people were scattering from him. He was about to face this huge army of the Philistines. And the people were running away. And Samuel wasn't there to help him. And the Philistines are over here at Michmash, and it's not very far just to march over to Gilgal. And they've got this ginormous army at this point. 30,000 chariots as we studied the other day. And after all, I hadn't yet asked favor of God, and I just really felt, I felt it in my heart. You know, I felt compelled <laughs> that I needed to do this. And all of that was wrong. And as most of you have just studied this in your classes recently, you realize this was the point. This was the turning point. And Samuel says on behalf of God, he said, God has taken the kingdom from you. You will not, you will not have a dynasty of kings from your seed. What's the bottom line? He didn't wait on the Lord. That's really it. So we see this principle throughout Scripture is my point. Scripture supplies us. Scripture supplies us. The Word of God supplies us. By the giving of the Holy Spirit, uh, or the, by the work of the Holy Spirit in giving the Word of God, we have instructions from God that supply us to every good work. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, completely furnished to every good work. Where is the information that we need to get and to wait on until we get for every good work? It's in the Scriptures. Now for us. The apostles waited to find out what God wanted them to do and what He was going to do. And then they relied, the early church did, on God's power to grab the attention of the lost. When we go back then to Acts 2 to our text, uh, you know the amazing events that ensued. There were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews from devout Jews, devout men, from every nation under heaven. They heard this sound. The multitude came together. They were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. All of these people come together and they hear speaking the apostles in their own language. They were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these Galileans? Galileans weren't known for their great education, nor for speaking multiple languages. An average Jew in the time of Christ might have spoken two or three languages, had to get along with the Romans a little bit, probably knew a little Greek or Aramaic. Sometimes some knew Aramaic and didn't really even know Hebrew. But to speak in all of these languages, how is it that we're hearing in the language in which we were born, Parthians, Medes, all the way people from the, from the, the eastern edge of, of the Bible lands, Elamites and Mesopotamia, and those up from Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, uh, up, to, up to the north in this Greco-Roman area, and Phrygia and Pamphylia, again, up in that area, and then Egypt and Libya and Cyrene, and then Rome, all of these peoples, and Cretans and Arabs, all of them hearing the apostles speaking in their own tongues the wonderful works of God. And they were all amazed and perplexed, saying, whatever could this mean? This 
outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the miraculous uh, ability to speak in tongues was no doubt something that really grabbed the attention of all of these gathered in Jerusalem. That's plainly stated in the text. And you say, well, that's what the church needs today. We need this miraculous outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We need some sort of thing like that in order to grab the attention of the people. What I want you to notice is, though, that what's behind all of that, it's God and the power of God and God's way. It wasn't, wasn't uh, you know, a carnival, was it? God could have said, Apostles, what we're going to do is we're going to have a carnival. We're going to put on you know, a lot of games for the kids. In fact, we'll have them dress up in costumes. We'll get them here, and then we'll uh, give out candy. And that's the way we're going to grab the attention of the public. Or he could have said, we're going to have entertainment. We're going to have a big gymnasium. They had gymnasiums in ancient times. Uh, we're going to build a big gymnasiums and offer people free exercise and all that sort of thing, and then slip in the gospel. But that's not how God attracted people, is it? He chose a miracle. The miracle of speaking in tongues. As we'll see in just a moment, the main thing about all of this wasn't the miracle. It was the message that was proclaimed through the miracle. But right now, just notice, here's God's way of attracting people to the gospel. And he doesn't use that way as far as the tongue speaking anymore. And I know that because 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 8 specifically says that tongues would cease. And I believe the Bible, and they did cease. And the reason that they ceased was their work was done. The word of God was delivered. And we have it. That's another study in and of itself. In the book of Acts, the church grew and was too powerful to be ignored because of God's Word. As you run through the book of Acts, you think, well, there are all sorts of miracles the apostles do, and no doubt that confirms that they are speaking God's Word. In fact, the Hebrew writer talks about this in Hebrews chapter 2, that God's Word, this great salvation, was confirmed unto us by those who heard Jesus, God bearing them witness by miracles and signs and wonders and gifts of the Holy Spirit. So God is confirming His Word by the miracles, but it's the Word that is the powerful thing and the thing of God that really gets the church established and that gathers people. So when you go through the book of Acts, I just want to notice they're not all up in the screen, but I'm going to notice a few verses in the book of Acts just real quickly. If you're ready to flip through in Acts chapter 4 and verse 33, for instance. With great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So it's the witness of the resurrection that you see throughout the book of Acts. That eyewitness testimony that Jesus was raised from the dead. The word of the apostles. Draws lots and lots of people. In Acts chapter 6 and verse 7, after the incident uh, there with the feeding the poor widows, the text says, then the word of God spread and the number of the disciples multiplied. Why did it multiply? Well, because the word of God spread. Then the word of God spread 
And the number of disciples multiplied in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 4, after the persecution that arose from Saul of Tarsus, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. And as a consequence of them preaching the word, churches are planted everywhere that they go. In Acts chapter 12 and verse 24, the word of God grew mightily and prevailed after the incidents of James being killed, Peter being imprisoned, and then Herod being killed. The word of God, the word, grew mightily and prevailed. In Acts 13 and verse 49, the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. The word of the Lord was being spread. In Acts 19 and verse 9, Paul in Ephesus was reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. What was the power that was causing the church to grow? What was attracting people to become Christians? Notice that's just actually a small sampling as you go through the book of Acts. It was the Word. It was the Word. It was the Word. Paul will say in in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel is God's power. It's God's and, and if I can say this to you, uh, the word power there is famously dunamis. We get our word dynamite from that, which is interesting, but probably not as interesting as we think it is, but it's interesting. But what is interesting about that word is that it is a word which is used to describe miracles at times in the New Testament. And, and what the gospel is, what the word of God is, is the miracle power of salvation. The gospel is a miracle. The entire story is miraculous. God comes to earth. God comes to earth in the flesh. How greater miracle could there be, right? Jesus performs all of these miracles, demonstrating to be the Son of God. Jesus dies as rose from the dead and, and is risen from the dead. He ascends back to be our intercessor and Savior. By His blood, our sins are washed away. Miracle all over all of that. It's God's power for salvation. Why don't we have tongue speaking today? Why don't, why don't we get that from the foundation? Because what's really in the foundation is the Word. The Word that the tongue speaking and the miracles confirmed. The Word of the Gospel of Jesus Christ is the miracle power of God to salvation. Let's look back. Let's look back to that. In Acts chapter 2, people were moved. People were moved to either obey or not obey, not based on the miracle, not, not based on the miracle of tongue, tongue speaking, but on the Word. They were either amazed or amused by the Word. 
And there in Acts chapter 2, doors are open for salvation to all who would hear. Peter, standing up with the eleven in verse 14, raised his voice and said to them, men, and, men of Judea, all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. Heed my words. Listen to this. These are not drunk as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. This is that which is spoken by the prophet Joel. And he, read, and he cites to them from the prophet Joel that the Spirit of the Lord would be poured on all flesh. That many would become God's servants and prophesy. And there would be signs and many great things. And it would come to pass then, and I'm not reading all of Joel's prophecy, but the end of it is the point of it. Verse 21. It shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the message. This is that that Joel prophesied. This miracle of tongue speaking was part of what Joel was talking about in Joel 2 when he spoke of these times. But the big thing is, whoever, whoever wills, whoever wants, it's open to everybody. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then he tells them how to call on the name of the Lord. He tells them about the crucifixion of Christ. He tells them about the resurrection of Christ. And he proclaims to them the message of salvation. As he goes on in verse 22, Men of Israel hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you've taken by lawless hands and crucified and put to death. And God raised him up. That's the next thing he says. So there is, there is much of the core of the gospel message. God's son, you crucified him. God raised him up. And then in verse 40, after he tells them of all of this, and they say, men and brethren, what shall we do? And he tells them in verse 38 to repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the mission of your sins. He says in verse 39, for the promise is to you and to your children, to all who are far off, as many as the Lord your God will call. See, it's, it's to everybody, whoever will, whoever wills. And then, those that gladly received His Word. What Word? The Word of the Gospel. The message of the Gospel. Those who gladly received His Word were baptized. He added to them about 3,000 souls. With many other words He testified. Be saved. And those that gladly received His Word were baptized. What are some foundational elements then that we can easily see Lots of things can be pointed out. Great sermon after great sermon preached in Acts chapter 2, obviously. But it seems that there are these four principles, elements, that we need not forget. We need to wait on the Lord. 
do, do things His way. We need to rely on His power to grab the attention of the world. And His power is in the Gospel. We need to open doors to all, all who are willing. All who are willing to hear. Any who are willing to call on the name of the Lord will be welcome. It is interesting to me that the church is both in prospect the most inclusive organization in the whole world, but in reality, the most exclusive organization in the whole world. You ever thought about that? <laughs> Whosoever will may come. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord. But if you haven't called on the name of the Lord, you're not a part of it. No matter how much you say you are or think you are. And Peter tells people how to call on the name of the Lord, doesn't he? Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. Jesus had said in Mark 16, verses 15 and 16, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's, that's the echo. That's what we're seeing uh, being instigated in Acts chapter 2. Everybody is welcome. Preach the gospel to every creature. But it is he who believes and is baptized that shall be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. Wait on the Lord. Grab attention with the gospel. Open the doors for everybody. And preach the saving message. These are fundamentals that we learn in Acts chapter 2. Thank you for listening tonight. And I hope these things that we've looked at in Acts 2 are just reinforcement for most of you. Some of it may be sort of new information. But in any case, it's never wrong, I don't think, to go back to these foundations of our faith. Look at what it is that the Lord wanted done and strive to do that ourselves. Tonight, there could be somebody here subject to the invitation of Christ who has not called on the name of the Lord, named His name, repented of sins, been baptized for the remission of your sins. Why not, why not tonight? Why not come as together we stand and while we sing?